Hello and welcome back to the History Obscura podcast. Today's background music is brought to you by Wedding on Hold with the Canada Revenue Agency. Ah, but first, I have a promo and I'd like you to give your attention. I'm Christy. And I'm Jackie. And we are Killer Fun. We explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. For as long as people have been communicating, they have been talking about who did what to whom, and is that socially acceptable? Because the boundaries of society, crime, and entertainment have always gone hand in hand. The more salacious, the weird, the better. From books and movies, to television shows and games, we look at how life and art imitate and inform one another. And we can't get together and not laugh. So let's face it, there's going to be laughing. <laughs> Killer Fun is available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So join us. In a great city like London, it is easy for someone to disappear. Men and women do so every day. Usually they have their own reasons. But every missing person report is a potential crime, and the police have to investigate. It is routine painstaking work. On a cold, miserable day in February 1949, a policewoman began checking up on an old lady missing from her hotel in South Kensington. Her name was Mrs. Durand Deacon, wealthy, aged 69, not the type to have her own good reasons for disappearing. The woman detective chatted with the guests at the hotel. One was Mrs. Lane, who explained that she was very worried about the old lady, for she had bade her goodbye on an afternoon two days earlier, helping her into a Persian lamb coat, as it was so cold. Mrs. Durand Deacon had talked about being back for dinner, as she was only going for a drive with that nice Mr. Hay. In due course, Mrs. Lane, with Mr. Hay, went to B Division Police Station in Lucan Place, Chelsea. Mrs. Lane could only repeat what she had already told the policewoman. Hay aroused much more interest. With the practical knowledge of psychology, which every detective obtains, there was no doubt in the policemen's minds that Hay was lying. I deemed it advisable to report what I know, he said pompously, though he had been told to attend the interview. Frankly, I must confess I'm worried. I had arranged to drive the poor old lady down to my factory near Crawley, but she failed to keep the appointment. Politely, Hay was thanked for his information and asked to keep in touch. From that moment, he was under police surveillance. He blithely walked off, convinced that he had told the police no more than he intended. But within minutes, the detection machine had begun to look for and sift information about the immaculately dressed and charming-voiced businessman. Hay had no conception of the vast criminal records section at the service of the department. Here, hundreds of thousands of cards stacked into New Scotland Yard, each containing details of a crime or criminal with side face and full face photographs, 
weight, height, characteristics, types of crime, and other details. Even if Hay had used another name, his record would soon have been traced. He was vain enough not even to do that. Hay, John George, provided an interesting dossier. The officers in charge of the investigation, one Detective Superintendent Barrett and Chief Detective Inspector Symes, had much to study. Hay was born of deeply religious parents at Stamford, Lincolnshire, in 1909. Soon after leaving school, he prospered by selling cars on higher purchase with the aid of forged agreements. For this, he was sent to prison for 15 months. As soon as he came out, he studied law, in order to learn how to evade it. He obtained a job as the manager of a dyers and cleaners. The police had good reason to recall that connection with various chemicals later on. He had to leave hurriedly to avoid prosecution for false pretenses. Hay had married a charming girl. He deserted her and then went to prison for four years for fraud. When he was released in 1940, his idea of patriotism was to make a lot of money as owner of a light engineering works, until theft put him in jail once more. There, his police record ended. Meanwhile, detectives were discreetly searching his factory near Crawley. Some strange relics were found, as well as a revolver hidden in a box and a cleaner's receipt for a fur coat. This coat proved to be Persian lamb. Hay, when questioned, insisted it belonged to his sister, a fairly safe assertion as it was of type made by the thousand. The coat was turned over to the back room boys of the yard's laboratory. The technical report stated that it had been worn for a long time, and the lining at the cuff of the left sleeve had been worn away. A neat and tidy owner had patched the hole. Not far off in the laboratory were various items brought from Mrs. Durand Deacon's room at the hotel. They were typical, pathetic relics of an old lady who had made the room her home. Receipts, half-used jars of cosmetics, old letters, a work basket full of cottons, wool, and oddments of material. Among the little pieces of material was one which closely resembled that used in the patch on the fur coat lining. But resemblance was not good enough. The detectives needed proof. Chief Inspector Law, the man who has brought the yard's photographic evidence to a fine and precise art, went to work. Microscopic pictures were taken of the stitches of the patch, the warp and weft of the material, and the uneven edge where scissors had snipped it from another piece. Similar pictures were prepared from the oddments in the work basket. 
Not only were the materials identical, but the serrated edges of each matched exactly thread for thread. The coat was not Hay's sister's. It was without any vestige of doubt the coat Miss Lane had helped her friend Mrs. Durand Deacon to put on that fatal February afternoon. With this information, the call went out for Hay to be brought in for questioning. He talked for more than forty hours, with intervals for rests, boasting that he had committed the perfect crime. Mrs. Durand Deacon no longer exists. She has disappeared, and no trace of her will ever be found again. I have destroyed her with acid. Her body is now a mass of sludge in a factory yard. You'll never be able to prove that the liquid was a human being. He was wrong. Science couldn't be beaten so easily. The scientific experts examined the forty-five-gallon tank into which Hay had pumped carboys of sulfuric acid, a piece of handbag, his victim's modern plastic dentures, and some substance which analysis could prove included bone, were all identified. Once again. Events had proved that one human being, no matter how diabolically cunning his brain, was no match for the regiment of skill which aids detection today. Confident that he would be declared insane and escape the gallows, this cool-headed monster glibly recounted details of his acid bath crimes. He recalled details of nine with clarity and was hazy about others. One estimate of his unique career of evil doing is twenty murders, all for monetary gain. When he decided that the harmless old lady to whom he had been so charming must die, he was spurred on by the fact that he had urgent debts totaling one hundred thirty-three pounds. He knew that Mrs. Durand Deacon was worth thousands. But his only gain from her death was just under one hundred pounds, and death by hanging. This has been brought to you by World News, May twenty ninth, nineteen fifty four. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe and get access to our last episode of the season, as well as an upcoming Halloween special. Good night.